Psalm 131. We've been in a series all summer on the Psalms. The Psalms were the songs of Jesus. They were the prayers of your Savior. They were written, yes, by David and by Asaph and even a couple by Moses and Solomon and many which we don't know who wrote them, 150 of them, to become the liturgy of our life. And this morning we give pause to think about Psalm 131. So if you're willing and able, would you stand with me as you read from God's holy word? Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, please. There's a strangely sacred ritual that people prepare for this time of year. In a couple of months, you're going to find crimson and green pilgrims and burnt orange pilgrims all converging upon one Dallas, Texas. And at this great, strangely liturgical, worshipful atmosphere, you're going to find rides and you're going to find things that are fried that none of us knew could be fried. And you're going to find the amazing display of ABC football in full force at the annual Texas OU football game. And there are people who will be there for the party. There will be people who just come for the State Fair of Texas. There will be people who wear the colors and they put on the face paint. But you know what? To get in the gates of that game, of the great Red River rivalry, you've got to have something. And in Christian worship, you can put on the colors and you can wear the face and you can go to the party. But to come to the table of the supper, you've got to have something. Do you have it? In this psalm, in Psalm 131, it begs of us, of you and me, to have the ticket to the supper, to the game, as it were. It shows us the characteristic that should define every single Christian in the world, but yet it is the characteristic quality and attribute of each of us that is so elusive that theologians have spent tomes, thousands of pages writing about how in the world do we get into the heart of a human being? Humility. And so in this psalm, as you direct our eyes to it this morning, as the Israelites in the ancient of days made their way to the Jewish Passover, ascending the hill of Jerusalem. They would sing songs, of which this was one. It's a festal song that they would sing. Maybe a leader would read or sing verses one and two, and then the entire nation and chorus would sing verse three like a chant going up the hill to Jerusalem. We're going to look together at Psalm 131. And I wonder if you brought the ticket to the game. 
to learn more about humility as God's people, you have to first understand the psalm, you have to hear the noise, and you have to experience his presence. The psalm, the noise, and the presence. So let's think about Psalm 131 together. First, the psalm. What is the psalm? Who's writing the psalm to us? The psalm was written 3,000 years ago. Most of us think in terms of like the social media minute, which is about 10 seconds. 3,000 years ago, King David wrote this psalm. And King David was a man who was a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel records. It was a man who walked with God. It was a man who was with God. And so just by that alone, it should cause us to want to pay attention to what Psalm 131 has to say to us. Psalm 131 was written by a king, a man who immediately declares that he is not haughty. In verse 1a, it says, I don't lift my eyes up. It doesn't say he doesn't look at the sky. It's a metaphor for saying, I do not think myself greater than I really am. And on earth, there was no one greater. It says in 1b that I don't presume that I am better than other people. I'm not presumptuous. You probably noticed in the psalm also that it's very brief. This psalm was a liturgical psalm. It was a psalm, as I mentioned, that people sang together. Just like we have our call to worship, we had it from Psalm 57 this morning. So they might sing the song together. Men, if you're looking for a good way to lead your family in devotions, why not just say verses 1 and 2 one night and have your family say back to you verse 3? To use the psalms in a kind of liturgical way, just like the ancient Israelites used to use. It's a very brief psalm. And the dominant theme of humility is couched in the progress of pilgrimage. And you and I both know what that's like. Because humility is one of those attributes that if you try to get it, you'll miss it. But yet we're on the journey to find it all of our life. A thousand years after King David lived, there was another person who came and who encapsulated this psalm. And through his praying of it, the Lord Jesus Christ, who also was a king, wasn't he? But yet, though he was the greatest in the world, he thought himself actually the smallest. He became a servant of all. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross for you and for me. This psalm, yes, was written by a great king 3,000 years ago. It's to be used by us today in the liturgies of our life because it was lived out by the king, the Lord Jesus, a thousand years ago. And Jesus gives us insight. You ever wonder what it was like to understand Jesus' mind? He gives us insight into his own consciousness as he draws near to the bosom of his Father. And he shows us what it's like to rest content in humility in the presence of his Father. To understand this psalm, you have to know what it is. You also have to know what it's not. This psalm is not, please hear me, it is not saying, okay, we need to retreat. We need to just be in our father's lap like a weaned child and our mother protected from the bad, bad world. No. Jesus, David, they exercised and lived out this psalm in the midst of action, in the midst of responsibilities, in the midst of incredible stresses. Greater, dare say, or as great as the stresses that you and I feel this morning. It was a lived psalm. It was dynamic. 
Which is why for those of us who live today, the temptation for us is to hear things like that happened in Charlottesville and to say, you know what, that's in Virginia. Where's first Virginia? That's a long way away. And to take things like that and to see in your own heart that it's not the bad, bad people over there that did those kinds of things, that you are capable of that kind of action yourself. And to be able to say that the church is not just an organization that sticks its head in the sand and goes off, as we did after the fall of Rome, to store cloisters and to start uh, monasteries in order to preserve our heritage and to translate and transcribe God's word. We have God's word. There's no need to cloister yourself off today. Instead, you're to step into the conflict as a Christian and say it is not about white supremacy, black supremacy, brown supremacy, red, yellow supremacy. It is about the supremacy of a third way that the world does not know. It is a way of the gospel. And experiences like Charlottesville and reading Psalm 131 draw us all the more into the news, not away from it, to not only pray, but to assess what would you do if that happened in Owasso, Oklahoma, or in Tulsa. If we had another 1921, which happened in Tulsa, what would you do, church? There's no better time to be a Christian than right now. Augustine wrote the city of God during the fall of Rome to say that it was the church that preserved society because they were humble enough to take in their own poor, but also others' poor, irrespective of what they lived or what they believed. And so also, if we are not humbled by the beauty of the cross of Christ, and if we don't understand this psalm, we will not be ready to respond whenever things like Charlottesville happen in our own area, or happen in your family, or happen at your work, in your world. This psalm is not is not saying that you need to cloister yourself off. It is saying that the inner quiet that we long for happens in the midst of our actions and our responsibilities and of our problems. Now, lastly, about the psalm. What does Psalm 131 describe? Psalm 131 describes a composure that is learned. It is not natural. Yes, temperaments may draw themselves to be perhaps more... Uh, taciturn or have the appearance of humility more so than others perhaps. But humility is learned. And you'll spend all of your life learning it, which is why there's beauty in having intergenerational community groups at our church. Because we need older brothers and sisters who have learned the hard row because you can be so cocksure of something when you're in your 20s. But you find somebody who's in their 60s who is still young. Thank you. And you know that they've actually learned a little something about humility. Because many of us swim in circles where we are so certain about certain things because we live in, and we just, it just makes us mad when you say we live in a world that we don't really understand is an enclosed world, but it's true. You need older brothers and sisters in Christ to help us recognize that the older you get, the more humble you grow as you understand the gospel more and more and more. So, Psalm 131 shows us that it is about the great King, the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us that it is not about cloistering yourself off. It shows us that humility is learned. 
and it's learned in the context of relationships. Now, the noise. Are you quiet? When you read this psalm, do you resonate with it? Let me read part of it again. Oh Lord, my, not, my heart is not proud, is not lifted up. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, things that are beyond my circle of responsibility. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Is Psalm 131 your experience? If the answer to that question is no, what's the noise going on inside of you? What are the activities, the voices, the interruptions that cause noise in your life? What are the habits that you have that drain you of your energy so you constantly feel exhausted physically, socially, and spiritually? Why do you lose your calm? How do you get so busy and preoccupied? When you get irritable, worried, wearied, or hopeless, how can you regain your composure? The sin rejected in verse 1a is a proud self-will. The sin rejected in 1b is a presumption that you are better than your neighbor. I do not raise my eyes too high. If it was written today, if we had our own translation, you might say, I do not look down my nose at anyone. I don't occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. That's not to say you shouldn't think big thoughts. You shouldn't dream big dreams. It's saying that I don't get consumed with things that are outside of my circle of responsibility. I don't live in a circle of concern. I don't throw myself at things that I have no control about and fret and worry about them as we learned last week. It means that I live inside my circle of responsibility. If you were to imagine two concentric circles, the inner circle is a circle of responsibility that you and I live in over which God has given us responsibility and we should give our attention to it. And the outside concentric circle is a circle of concern, things you're concerned about, things you're aware of in the world, but over which you have no control. And our tendency is our pride begins to push that inner circle out wider and wider and wider to give us the illusion of control over things we have no control about. But instead, we're called as Christians to live. When Scripture says to live meekly, to live a quiet life. It's not saying be anonymous. It's saying live within the sphere of your responsibility. And don't wear yourself out to try to control those things that you simply cannot control. But the problem is there is so much noise going around. I mean, even yesterday we heard of friends of ours who were just you know, running and gunning. This is the story of many of our weekends. You're going to activity after activity after activity. And then you hear the word Sabbath and you think, well, that'd be nice. Well, you know that Psalm 131 is giving you permission to make the margin in your life necessary for Sabbath rest. It's not that you don't have the time. It's that we mismanage our time in such a way, and no, nobody's beaten up on anybody here. I'm guilty as charged. But we mismanage our time in such a way that we actually don't have a peace about building in rest. We think it's counterproductive. But dare I say 
that is actually the most productive thing biochemically you can do for your body. More and more studies are coming out in workplace development where it's not only in ministry where people are offering sabbaticals. In corporate America, they're beginning to offer sabbaticals to employees. A good example of this is, is not only do we have maternal leave increasing, but paternal leave is increasing, right? And some companies are even moving that broader and broader and saying, we want you to stop working. Some of you work for companies where you don't work every other Friday because they know the value of rest. And it seems counterintuitive, but as more and more people begin to catch on to this, Companies are becoming more and more effective because people aren't falling asleep at their desk at 2.30 in the afternoon or getting so distracted by so many things that beg for their attention. And just this week, I was trying to prepare for this sermon and I was fighting back the noise of texts and phones and Facebook and social media. And you know what I had to do? I had to like put the reader on my web browser so that I stopped watching ads you know the little reader button on your website? You punch the reader button and it just gives you text because I had to drown out the noise. And then I had in several emails I had, I had to just say, call me on the phone because email is sucking me dry and so I would call people on the phone. It's an amazing experience to call people on the phone. I mean, it is amazing. And to hear the intonation of their voice, and have a conversation about it, it's wonderful. And as silly as those, th those things may sound, you know, it actually helped me relax. Because I wasn't worried how quickly somebody would respond to my text. There's a thing they call um, uh, social media text, or it's a psychic, uh, uh, social media stress, it's a psychic test, uh, stress that happens in your life whenever you post something to social media. And more and more sociologists are studying this because when you post something to social media, it actually makes you more and more stressed out when you wait for people to click like, to affirm your decision to post that picture. And you know, you, you know what I mean. You've all posted pictures and you've waited for people to like it and you go back the next day and you look, how many people like my picture? Five. And you say, well, it's because I posted it at the wrong time of day. But it raises your psychic stress level. And I'm not here, God's word doesn't tell you how to manage your social media, but what I am here to tell you is it does tell you to rest. And the noise in your life continues to raise unless you're able as a Christian to be able to see outside the noise, hear outside the noise and saying, I don't have to listen to the noise. You're gonna see more and more studies are gonna come out and I, I will try to hold back because they are, they are just full of illustrations for almost every sermon about the inverse relationship between the way we use our telephones and our mental health. But they will come out in mass over the next six months to 12 months. More and more popular books that they've been studying these things for years, and they're going to start coming out and hitting the bookshelves. Every one of you who travel at the airport, you're going to see it. And it's an amazing study on a generation that's been raised with a phone in their hand and the amount of noise. For example, do you know that today our children, they are less and less likely to kill one another. The animosity toward other people has gone way down. Isn't that amazing? 
teen pregnancy has gone way down, in part because they're never together. But you know what's gone up? We're much less likely to kill our neighbor, but actually our children are more likely to kill themselves. Because they live in a world where they are constantly looking through a blue screen at reality. And they've lost sight of what reality really is. And there is nothing bad with social media. I'm just picking on it for a minute because it is noise. You can pick on whatever you want to. You can pick on screaming kids. One mother, I was talking to the ser- with her about the sermon, and she was like, ah, that's not my issue. It's my, that's my noise. And she was pointing to her children. But if the noise for you is social media, please consider it like a drug. There's good prescriptive drugs for your health. They're beautiful, right, good to lean into and to use. But you can also abuse them in horrible ways and become incredibly addicted. And then off you go, feeling like if I don't post, if I don't respond immediately, then somebody's not going to like me. And it breaks down your self-esteem. And you come to church and we talk about Jesus and how much he loves you. And it falls on deaf ears. You know why? Because you've listened for so long to a different counselor. You have tuned into a different station than God's word. And we are pleading with you. Plead with me. Plead for me and my children that we will constantly give heed to God's word, to let it define our reality in such a way that we can hear beyond the noise, because you cannot wean yourself off of it alone. You've got to have help. The prayer of confession that that Scott led us through earlier is what's called an anti-psalm. It is Psalm 131 in verse. It is Psalm 131 written as an anti-psalm. So I want to walk us through it again. Confessions of sin are meant to help us identify pride. That's what they're there for. They're not just traditional. They're meant to identify to be diagnostic tools in your life in the midst of corporate worship. And so let's look back at this anti-psalm that we confessed again. And I'm going to read it again. And I want to use it as a diagnostic of my own heart and of yours. Here it is. The anti-psalm of Psalm 131. Self, my heart is proud. I'm self-absorbed. And my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. And chase after things too tempting to resist, which manipulate me, devour my time. So, of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap, like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and my worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and anybody who will listen. Oh, Father, help me to hope in you for the help I need. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you kick against the pride in our hearts. You can go down a road and we will let you run because there's no other alternative. You will run down a very, very long road that is littered with false promises, each of them justifying your behavior to tune out the word of God and to tune in to the other voices and counselors of the world. And you will go down a very long road and we will let you run it. You have to run it because you won't be persuaded by coercion. The gospel doesn't coerce you. It just presents you the truth. But I want you to know something. 
we will be here when you decide to turn off the road we will be here the church with open arms to welcome you and embrace you because every person in this room has run down that road some of us a short distance some of us a very long time the noise in our life has has to be recognized and you have to be able to tune your heart through a time of reflection in your world to know what is it that has become supreme in my life. Because the essence of pride is taking supremacy away from God and placing it upon yourself. The definition of pride is seeking self-sufficiency from others and supremacy from God and saying, I got this. And humility is seen in the midst of God's holiness and love. That you are unworthy to even be called his child. And that is where grace takes shape. And he calls us not just to get beyond the noise, but he calls us in order to understand the noise of our hearts and to get through it to rest in his presence to rest in his presence. The metaphor of a weaned child, you know what a weaned child is? A, a weaned child is a child who no longer needs the nourishment of his mother. Like you've seen children who need the nourishment of their moms. They long to be with her. They want to be with her. They have to be with her to be sustained. But a weaned child doesn't need anything from its mother. It just is. It just sits with his mother. And many of us view God the same way. We are like nursing infants coming to God. God, give me a good job. I need that house. Provide for me this. It is the social construct of the southern part of the United States to be in the church. Still, it seems to be a majority, even though it's actually a minority culture. We talk about it as a majority culture. So we're all a part of the church. Give me the social status I need. But what does it mean to actually be in God's presence with none of that to complement it? Just to be in his presence. Where do you raise up ladders of achievement? Where do you go for victory, for the grade, for the promotion, for the big church, for the idealized devotional life? What ladders do you climb? Where do you clamor up the ladder of acquisition. Where do you say, if only, if I had this, then I would be deeply satisfied? Where do you scuttle up the ladders of avoidance, if I can just avoid this conversation because it's too hard? Those are the areas where pride has set in your heart. And it is a very hard shell to break. And the only way to break it is to live in what Psalm 131 calls us to live in to draw near to the presence of God and to let him woo you, to sustain you by his love. Marx and Nietzsche and Freud were what people call masters of suspicion. And today you have modern day versions, Bill Maurer, Trevor Noah, Seth Meyers, 
Saturday Night Live, reruns of The Simpsons, Calvin and Hobbes. These are cynical views of life that often are so funny. People love to watch them. But they were masters of suspicion that bled into cynicism. But Jesus Christ is presented to us as the master of suspicion who came into a world that was incredibly cynical and incredibly suspicious of authority. He doubted the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were always trying to put people down to remind them that they still hold, held authority in the ancient Near East. And Jesus doesn't come to us with humor, although he is quite humorous in the Gospels. He doesn't come to us with cynicism. He comes to us with joy. Isn't that amazing? He comes to re-deliver to us the joy that we seem to have lost in the midst of all of our infighting and the noise. In Psalm 131, you see a picture with self-suspicion and social suspicion who's toppling vainglory at every turn. And Jesus himself was the one who taught us how to do this because he himself was the one who learned to live Psalm 131. Do you know him? In a few months, many of us will gather at the state fairgrounds in Dallas. And many of us are going to avoid all of East Dallas and I-30 because we do not want to be anywhere close to it. But when it comes to get into the game, you're going to need a ticket. And friends, within the sound of my voice, the ticket to the Lord's table is humility. And the way to be humble is not to try to gain it like a card in your wallet. The way to gain it is to look at your Savior who is able to turn down the noise and who is able with joy to enter a noisy world that you and I live in and to rest in the presence of his Father who had a Sabbath practice in his life to stop. That alone might be a reason why you need to come to adult discipleship on Sunday morning. Who came to worship a few minutes early to just rest and to prepare his heart for worship. Who planned his Sunday on Friday night so that his Saturday wouldn't be exhausting for him so he could come ready to worship God on Sunday. Who whenever a tower fell in Salome, or there was a rally in Charlottesville. Jesus was able to step into that situation. Jesus was able to say, friends, it is not about the Pharisees on one side, the Sadducees on the other. It is about a gospel full of grace that makes room for everyone who will be humbled at the foot of the cross. So as you come to this table this morning, please, no, this psalm was not written in order for us to silo ourselves away from the bad, bad world. It was written for us to be in the midst of the actions and responsibilities of our life. Know that this psalm was meant to be the mute button to help us turn down the noise in order to come into his presence and arrest because only he can heal us. Only he can renew us because only he lived the life that we could not live and only he died the death our Lord Jesus Christ, the death that we deserved.
And so, friends, please come to this table. If you're in Christ, please run to it because he wants to nourish you. And like a weaned child, you won't sit this morning. You will walk and you will stand in his lap. And you will let him put his arms around you if you're in Christ. And he will sing over you his love. Because it's only in his presence that you are safe and secure and at rest. Do you know that rest? Please come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.